Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations with news about New Orleans that counts, about our economy, our environment, our culture, and some occasional politics. Thank you for joining and enjoy the show. I have on the show with us today for your um, education and edification, uh, Dequan Forcell, who is um, uh, does curatorial service with the Contemporary Arts Center and has been working um, uh, with Shana Griffin and others on this incredible, uh, I, call, I would call it a blockbuster um, show, a photography of Black photographers, uh, some from this region and from elsewhere as well. And um, I don't remember the total number of, of photographers, but it's it's a big number. What is the number? There's a hundred photographers and then three guests. Oh, oh. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 really amazing. And I don't think um I don't think people think about uh there being so many artists um who are working in a particular media um that are um you know, covering a big swath of the experience of of our community and of our world, and um, that's that's what I get the impression of of this show is when I walk in, I'm, I'm looking at our world um, that we live in, and so tell me um, a little bit about the thinking behind it, how it got started, and um, what you feel is the focus of it and how it affected you to be working on it. So I don't know much about the beginning of it because that comes from the CN Black team. So but my through my involvement with CACs, because I know this is the third installment. So it's, a, it's like four installments of this exhibition. The first one happened at the um, New Orleans African-American Museum. The second one happened at Ashe um, Cultural Arts Center. The third one is currently up at the Contemporary Arts Center. And then the fourth one will be up at Xavier University's gallery. But in terms of how I feel about the exhibition and it's like impact, I think it's like really cultural. I think it's really great for the culture in terms that I, I think when people see New Orleans, I think of New Orleans, they always think of just the black masking traditions are like the Mardi Gras Indians or Bourbon Street, but you don't really get to see like the actual life of it, like how second lines lead into black masking traditions, like how those are two different things. You don't really see like the the way we celebrate the the dead or the not living or like the spiritual aspects, and then the, also there's like things like family life that's being depicted and vanishing black bars and club scenes and different things like that, that I think for me working on it and just, just being a part of that, it felt powerful in the sense, cause I'm from the West bank of new Orleans. So I'm, I don't really get all of that side. And so to be around all of these images and looking at all of these photographers and all of the photography that's happening, I think for me, it just really touched me. It meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to you in terms of the subject matter and what it presented uh, of our uh, culture and life here uh -huh. in the city. 
but also the creative output of all of those artists must have been kind of stunning when you first started unwrapping the um, the photographs and you, you you know you had to be saying oh my god a few times um, yeah as more and more came in it was just like crazy to see the works themselves like some of the people that's depicted in them which I think is also a part of this exhibition is like you come and you can see like your friends and family and different people that you've interacted with you've grown up with yeah seeing that you you know seeing the people that you recognize like there was a photo of um jerome smith oh they call him big duck there's a photo of him and when i seen it i immediately recognized him i was like oh i know this person like yeah. i was like i'm glad that this is in this show i'm glad people get to see him and different things like that mm -hmm. i think those being a part of that and seeing all of that i think that was like amazing i wish i could think of other words to describe this type of stuff this work tell me about uh the the photographers themselves you you must have interacted with some of them um in the course of presenting the work um so what impression did you get of their feelings about the exhibition they had to be emotionally moved by it as well oh yeah so i know for instance eric waters who has, he's a part of the Seeing Black team, and he also has like eight to 10 works within the show. Every time Eric would come through the space and as we were installing it, he'd be like, oh my God, this is really amazing. I haven't seen anything like this all around the country, anywhere. This is going to be a really great show. I know Polo Silk, who also has, he has an installation, one of the five installations within that um, exhibition. Polo Silk's ex exhibition, his installation, he was like, he was looking at like the other works being installed. He's like, oh, I got to add this. Or I need to add that. I want to add this and add all of these different things. Like he every time a different. Yeah, yeah, he was every time a photographer. Yeah, I was thinking every time a photographer would come through, they were just, they were also in awe of the spectacle and scale of this exhibition. I love that. I love that the artists uh, were rewarded um that way emotionally and and uh uh with a sense of pride i'm sure in in what their fellow photographers and fellow black photographers um uh had a, had achieved and and how it, it came together and what it looked like when you saw it all together i think that's the thing that uh, i think people who come to see the show are going to be again awestruck by the quantity of, of incredibly uh, impactful and beautifully, um, beautifully in the technical sense and in the aesthetic sense and in the life sense um, of, of all the work that's in this, this one show. I mean, it's just, you know, as you said, it's hard to avoid the word amazing that uh, it's, a, it's an accomplishment. What do you think the outcome of the show is? in a way. So what's the long-term impact? There's the impact that hits you between the eyes immediately when you first see it. And then what do you think the uh, long-term impact of it might be? In terms of location or in terms of CAC, I think the long-term, I think it'll bring a lot of more people through those doors. Like I was, it's funny, I was looking at the numbers today and I looked at the numbers of, our, of a, one of our previous exhibitions and the numbers for between C and Black, don't you know, gestures of refusal. 
And we've already done more than half of what one exhibition has done throughout this duration. We've done more than half in just one month of this exhibition being open. Oh, that's really impressive. I'm I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, that's I'm like collecting um uh, sort of sign in sheets or something from all these people who are coming in, so we can, you know, follow up and invite them to come back for the next. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Exhibition. Yeah, every time any someone comes through the doors, we're getting a lot of information right from the very beginning. We're getting names and emails, and that way we can reach out to these people and help build, you know, that community. So in long, like I said, long term for CAC, I think it's great for numbers and getting people and help building that audience that we talk about a lot, like or many times. Like I've been in a couple meetings and things where it's like, oh, we're trying to build our community and build the audience and build these numbers. And I think that's what this show is helping to do for CAC right. by having something like I've had somebody reach out to me recently on Instagram and was like. I haven't seen anything like this before at CAC. This is really amazing. I want to bring my, because they, they're a teacher. They're like, I want to bring my class there. How do I set up group tours and things like that? So I think it's also going to leave a lasting impression on the people, the general patrons and people in the communities as well. That actually, that that uh, makes me ask the question of 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 how um, are schools being invited to do tours of the show, and um, if so, how uh, share with the, the listening audience uh, uh, how people can make an arrangement to have a class come to see the show. Yeah, so we've had we recently we've had a, we had a class from Tulane show up last Tuesday, which if you know the CAC, we're normally closed on Tuesdays, but we decided to open it for them because this is a class that only meets on Tuesdays. So in order to have things like that happen, it's funny, they reach out to me as the patron and visitor services manager at CAC. You could send me an email and then I'll set it up the date and times and have everything ready to go. We can turn on the exhibition, have it open for you. We can also walk you through it. Like Dana Griffin, who was the curator of the exhibition, she was here Tuesday. Unfortunately, she's out of town right now, but she was here Tuesday to walk the class through the exhibition and talk to them a little bit more about it. It's like I have some knowledge on it where I can also, you know, talk people through it. But like I said, just to get it set up for people, just reach out to me at CAC. My name and email is on the website. So let's spell out your name and your um your email so that people can con contact you if they're listening uh, because they they are we have people listening and this is going to air friday at noon on wbok by the way just so you know uh wbok 12 30 a.m and um so you know put the word out uh online and uh, encourage people to listen in so uh, 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 uh tell me a little bit about you know exactly how people can uh connect and and uh, yeah, let's tell people what the hours are and the days uh, for the CAC. And I know that you're going to be closed for a couple of weekends around Mardi Gras. So let's make sure people don't try to come then uh, to see that show. Okay. So first off, my name is Dequan Forsell, D-I-Q-U-A-N, Forsell, F-O-R-C-E-L-L. -L. My email address is D Forsell at CACNO.org, which is also our website, CACNO.org, where you can go and you can find me and reach me. 
our the contemporary arts center our hours are 11 to 5 every day except for tuesdays tuesdays is the only day that we're closed and like you were saying a couple there's some days coming up where we will be closing early so i know beginning it's tomorrow february 2nd yeah. yes do the mardi gras parade february 2nd we'll be closing at 3 p.m um february i'm trying to find a calendar real quick february third will be closed all day february 4th will be closed all day and then february 7th will close at 3 p.m february 8th will close at 3 p.m february 9th will be closed all day february 10th will be closed all day february 11th 12th 13th will be closed all day and then galleries will open back up on the 14th yeah i mean you're in mardi gras zone so uh that has an impact but then after that the show is going to stay up through april Yes, so currently the show is slated to be up until April 29th. Mm -hmm. And then it'll be open on all days except Tuesday. Yes. From what time to what time? From 11 to 5. 11 to 5. Well, um, I I, uh, I think you're going to see a few people coming in. <laughs> I really do. And um, I, I'm just curious. Uh, I, I know that you're a curator and you work with the CAC, but... Uh, tell me about your creative practice. So I I consider myself a painter. I also draw and I do little, little bit of graphics, but I've been leaning more into the curatorial process. But as an artist, I like to identify as a painter. I've had paintings shown at Antenna's Gallery back in November where I curated that exhibition there, um, new member exhibition. It was called 1111 New Member Exhibition. I also have worked currently in a boba tea restaurant on Magazine Street called Moon Garden. I have between five to six paintings on their walls there. Um, All of those paintings deal with like astronauts and the moon and space because the place is called Moon Garden. <laughs> um, my, my more recent work, like my personal work, has been it explores childhood traumas and how do we heal through those traumas and it's funny because that that'll bring me to my next exhibition i'm curating an exhibition at antenna in july which is based around safe spaces for people of color and so places you know where we can talk about these traumatic experiences and we feel comfortable saying these type of things for you know around people that look like us I think it's interesting the uh, juxtaposition of making work and curating work. And so how would you describe the difference between that those two ways of dealing with art? Making I think it, for me personally, curating it, yeah. When I make art, I don't think about where it's going, which with the curation side of things, that's a part of it. So. I know with me, when I was curating this exhibition, Seeing Black Justice or Refutal, I, I was helping curate this exhibition. I know for me, I would always look at colors first. I would always thought, I was like, well, my, I was like, what is my eye being drawn to? What colors stand out in these photos? Where is it gonna draw me around the room? Cause you don't wanna align all your colors in the middle of a room and then the rest of the wall gets lost. Then I would look at 
like the weights of the photos? Like, is this image heavier than this image? Is it lighter? What's being, what is in this image? How, how much space is being used in this image? And then I would think about like the story of things. So it's like, all right, what story is being told with this image? And what story is being told by placing this one image next to the next image or above it? Like all of that goes into the curation process, which I don't think you really think about when you're creating work. When you create work, well, I know when I create work, I just create the work. It's like, I see it in my head. It's like, then I put it on the canvas. I don't think about, okay, well, if this goes in the gallery, what would it sit next to? And does this story relate to this one and that one? That's I was like, they're different in that way, but also similar in a similar vein. But I would imagine also that in your curating process, that is informing your work in a way, as you see how other artists uh, dealt with certain subject matter um, uh, and ideas and, and design thoughts and so forth. Um, so it, it, it's a very, I, I think it's a, it's an impressive combination. I, I can't resist encouraging you to come see a show that I curated and I'm not a professional curator. And um, everybody always asks me, are you the artist when they come to my home, which is filled with art, but it's all my husband, Robert Tannins mainly, but I did make art and I'm sort of a, a Sunday painter. I think they call people like me, but um, we did a show called homage to trees and it was inspired by the two trees that fell, uh, one that injured somebody and, and one that just fell across, you know, um, Carrollton. And uh, this, the coverage, the news coverage blamed it on the um, conjunction of the drought and, and a big rainfall. And that combination can cause trees to come down. But I felt the story that was being missed was the, the general condition of our live oaks in particular, but our trees in general in the city. So I said, let me do an art show and call people's attention to trees, period. And so we did a show at the Crevasse 22 River House, which is in, in, in Poydras in St. Bernard. And uh -huh. um, uh, so it's kind of in a rural area, and it's uh, it's a beautiful show. I encourage you to come see it. I'd love to hear your uh, perspective on it after you've seen it. And we the only photographs that we have in this particular no, I'm sorry, we have two sets of photographs. Um, one by a television broadcaster who um, also happens to be a photographer, and um, and one by um, a fairly well known photographer who really even hesitated to put her name on it because what she did, we drove around and we took these quick studies of trees that were in bad shape, that were um, challenged, that might be dying or at uh -huh. least not looking like they were in good shape at all. Um, and so, yeah, we have those two uh, photography components and the, the others are sculptures and um fabric works and plain air paintings and it's a it's a really it's a real mixture also some word pieces so um provas 22 come see it we're going to be open with that show i thought we were going to close it in april but it was it's so beautiful and popular we're going to keep it up till the fall and um change oh my the show. god so, that's a long uh, exhibition yeah. to the fall <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, a part of the problem, well, in this case, I really think the show is just something that 
is justified keeping it up for a while. And we don't um, try to book a lot of shows in a given year because we don't have a lot of money. <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, we we you know we do what we can. Let's put it that way. Okay. I've been informed by our conversation. I've enjoyed it. And um, I, I look forward to coming on one of the walkthroughs. So be sure and uh, send me um, little, you know, reminders of any kind of events that are going on, any special tours or special events. So I can mm. come here, um, you and um, and Shana talk about the show in, in, uh, in, in your um in, in the in the show itself um but tell everybody one more time the name of the show contemporary art center is at 900 camp street which is right near lee circle and just across the street from the ogden and the ogden was not there when we opened the cac in that old building the, the ogden came along after and said oh that this might be a nice location for a museum if the cac is here right so, and uh, if World War II, too, that wasn't there when we opened either. When we opened the Contemporary Arts Center, Dequan, I was part of the, my husband and I were the original founders and worked with a group of artists and friends to get it open. Um, mm -hmm. That area had nothing going on. It was kind of a dying area. And so we're very uh, proud of, of what it's become. And, uh, and I'm, I'm proud that you got to work on it and continue to work there. I'm gonna say I'm glad you all did what you all did. Like, I wouldn't have walked into that area and thought we can put museums here, and this will be a, like a hub for arts. Especially with me knowing that it was like a warehouse district, I wouldn't have thought museums. So I'm glad you all had that vision to do that type of thing and provide a space for people like myself. It helped that uh, Sidney Bestoff, who owned the building, was willing to loan it to us for quite a while before he finally decided to um, to actually give it to us. So that, that was an important part of being able to capture the space in that area and make something happen there. Thank you for what you do and good luck. And, um, and when you send me your notices of what's going on, also tell me about your work. Send it to mm. me so I can post it on our newsletter, okay? Okay, I can definitely do that for you. All right, and um, I, I hope things uh, go well for you. All right. All right, thank All right. you so thank much, you. and I'll, I'll see you at the CAC. All right, I'll see you. Okay, bye-bye. I know that we can. I know darn well. We can work it out. Well, yes, we can. No, we can, can. Yes, we can, can. Oh, why can't we? If we want it, yes, we can, can. I know William Most is an attorney who works, uh, I, I, I assume, more than once. Uh, at times with um, the Bucket Brigade, which is a very interesting organization. Quite frankly, I was most familiar with it during Katrina because they, uh, uh, the people in that organization, the leadership, played an important role at the time. And I haven't uh, heard that much or known a lot about what it's been doing, but um, recently with you, they have brought suit against the developers of uh, what the developers call the River District, uh, which is, uh, what is it, about 40 acres uh, of um, 
uh, near uh, above upriver from the convention center, running along the river and um, bordered uh, otherwise by the um, uh, uh, uptown neighborhoods. And uh, I, I, I need to understand um, the two things. Why bring a suit and uh, is legal action by a community organization, which is what I'm calling um, Bucket Brigade, um, is, is, is that the most effective way to go after having um, an impact on the planning of that area, which is what I assume the purpose of the lawsuit is. But let me let me stop uh, assuming things and uh, ask you to explain to uh, to me and to our audience um, what's going on. Sure. So thank you very much for having me on. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I'm William Most. Uh, I'm one of the attorneys at Most and Associates, which is a a law firm that uh, focuses on civil rights, environmental issues, and other uh, justice focuses. And one of our clients is the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, which is a, a New Orleans-based nonprofit that uses grassroots action to hold the petrochemical industry and government accountable for the true cost of pollution. And so the, the Louisiana Bucket Brigade was particularly interested in this river district redevelopment plan for the reason that the Shell Oil Company, one of the richest petrochemical companies in the world, is gonna be moving its regional headquarters from the CBD of New Orleans to this new redevelopment area a few miles away. And what's concerning is that under the city's plan, taxes would go up on everybody. Sales taxes in the River District will be increased, but property taxes on the building the Shell company is moving into would be decreased. So a tax increase for regular New Orleans citizens and a tax decrease for a multi-billion dollar petrochemical company that is harming the environment in Louisiana. And that's why the Louisiana Bucket Brigade decided to get involved. So generally speaking, uh, what is the mission of the um... Bucket Brigade uh, regarding, uh, you mentioned, of course, it's environmental issues and pollution is, of course, a, a core issue for us in Louisiana because of the petrochemical industry. Um, but but in particular, in this case, uh, why did they take it on? Yeah. So the Louisiana Bucket Brigade is not opposed to the redevelopment generally of the River District, which is 47 sure. acres along the Mississippi River in New Orleans. There's a plan for uh, mixed use development, some housing, various aspects to the, the redevelopment. And the Louisiana Bucket Brigade is not trying to stop the project. What it is opposed to, however, is the idea of a multi-million dollar tax break, which would be about $21.6 million in a tax break for the building of the Shell Company. The idea is that petrochemical companies in Louisiana should be paying more for the damage they're causing to our environment, to our air, to our water, to our coastline. And so the idea that we would be giving a massive multi tens of millions of dollars tax break to a petrochemical company is a real problem when taxes on everyone else are going up. Um, is there a uh, an international model for uh, this kind of an issue is 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 
is in other uh, either developed or, or less developed countries, uh, where do we see policies that uh, do not do that, do not give big tax breaks to um, rich companies that have a negative impact on the citizenry? Sure. So, I mean, in general, you know, the goal in a functioning economy is to have companies pay for the harm they cause, right? If they are going to use public resources and cause harm to the public, they need to pay for that. That's what we call internalizing their externalities, having them bear the cost of the harm they cause. But in Louisiana, we often have the opposite, which is that the companies that cause the most harm to the rest of us are given tax breaks rather than having to pay their fair share. And so that's, that's particularly highlighted here. And what we saw was not only a tax break, but an illegally rushed process of approving that tax break and a number of other problems with the process that short-circuited the public's right of input and resulted in the city council essentially not understanding what they were approving and approving it illegally. And that's why we decided to file suit. So the objection isn't so much to what is being planned uh, for the use of this of this property, this this area, uh, as it is to the um, the tax break. That's correct. Uh, which seems like an unfair tax break for um, a major company. But again, going back to my question about policies in other places. So where is there a model for um, a a country, a nation, or a, or a city? or a state um, expressing the other kind of policy of, of, of making uh, rich companies pay for their use of an area and, and especially for the impact that um, whatever they're producing or doing might have on the populace around them. Yeah, so you see countries with sovereign wealth funds which require, you know, when there's an extraction of a public resource like oil or gas um, that, that the oil or gas, our public resources belong to all of us. And so you see a lot of countries that appropriately require the companies that take those public resources and make a private profit off them to share that with, with the public, right? And that is in some countries in the Nordic regions paid into sovereign wealth funds or, or other funds. In Louisiana, however, we have the opposite problem where we subsidize petrochemical companies from taking our public resources. And then we, we require the public to pick up the cost of the negative impacts that they cause, whether it's uncapped wells that are just left behind, what are called orphan wells that the public then has to take care of, cap, clean up, whether it's damage to the coastline. So the, the ditches and uh, that are dug through the marshes that then allow for more erosion, and a taking away of our coastline, which is our best defense against hurricanes and storms. So we have a system where the public picks up the cost and the private companies take the profit. And Louisiana Bucket Brigade is trying to shift that imbalance back to something that's healthier for our state. So, so this is um, so this action in terms of this uh, area, the, this so-called river district, the developer's name for this area, um, is not the only example by far of what 
Bucket Brigade is doing on, on this policy question. But let me ask you this. I mean, uh, we had a we had a governor once called Huey Long, um, who allegedly was supposed to be, you know, very much uh, supportive of the populace as opposed to um, a private interests. And uh, he, he, I don't remember the history well enough to really quote what he did and didn't do. But here we are, um, you know, uh, three quarters of a century later, or maybe it's even more than that. It's it's almost it's about a century. It's going to be a century in another few years, and and we're still doing this. So, and and Bucket Brigade has been fighting this fight in other parts of the state for how long now? About twenty years. Not sure exactly, but yes, they they're fighting the excesses of petrochemical companies across the state in Southwest Louisiana in Orleans Parish around the. The state, yes. So, so why is this so hard? Well, it's a great question. Um, you know, it requires an engaged populace that wants to get involved, and that's part of Louisiana Bucket Brigade's mission. So, for example, here, um, you know, there were protections that were put into place to try and avoid this outcome. So, the state legislature passed a law called Act Two One Two, which set out a timeline for approval or a tax break like the one that Shell's building is getting. And it set out a very specific timeline that had 45, up to 45 days for uh, the mayor's office to review a proposal, a minimum 15-day uh, review period in the middle, and then up to 30 days for city council approval uh, for a total of up to 90 days and a minimum of 15 days. And the idea there was to allow that there was plenty of time for review, analysis, looking at the pros and cons, and allowing for the public to do the same and provide input to their representatives on the city council. But that didn't happen. The whole process that could be up to 90 days and no fewer than 15 was shortened to just 11 days total. The, the law was broken in the approval of this process and that short-circuited the public's ability to talk to their representatives and express their concerns. So that's why this lawsuit is so important is because we need to hold the decision makers accountable when they break the laws that were set up to allow the public to have input. I mean, I'll give you an example of how uh, crazy this was, which was on December 1st, 2023 at 10 a.m., the city council approved a term sheet that provided for the tax break that referred to certain findings made by the River District subdistrict. Well, it turns out that River Di District subdistrict did not even exist at the time. It was a government body that was not even created until 3 p.m. later that day. So this process was so rushed that the city council was approving things about a government entity that did not yet exist. Uh, uh, you know, given the um, uh, intensity of positioning by some members of the council on some issues, that comes as a shock to me that they were kind of asleep at the wheel on this. I mean, land land use is is a is an important function of government um, to. Uh, oversee to make sure, as you said, uh, uh, you know, that it, public resources belong to all of us. 
land, I I think is a public resource. Not always, mm -hmm. but if 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 it hasn't been claimed for use and it's and it's it's essentially vacant, is that not public resource that belongs to all of us and should be cared for by the people in government on behalf of the rest of us? And certainly, how it goes. This. The city, you know, us, the members of the city, have a right to, you know, have input on how land is used. And to their credit, the city council members, I think, believe that there was going to be more time to discuss, analyze, et cetera, because they did approve part of the project on December 1st. But then there was discussion that they would have more time to approve a cooperative ah. endeavor agreement that the city was supposed to be a, a sign on to. Uh, and they were going to use that time before signing the cooperative endeavor agreement to look further, to analyze, to discuss, and maybe, uh, you know, make sure that everything was right. But then what happened is the project proponents changed the cooperative endeavor agreement and just drew a line through everything that said the city of New Orleans would be involved, deleted the city of New Orleans from the document, and approved it without the city's involvement. So the city council members thought that they were going to have time to look and approve, and instead they got cut entirely out of the process after that. Wow. I, I wasn't aware of that. You know, I'm really kind of surprised, I have to say, about the particular group of people that's involved with this project, because... You know, based on not uh, heavy, in-depth knowledge of them, but just, you know, passing knowledge of them, um, they're not bad people. <laughs> you know, they're good people. So I would have expected them to try to do, and also there's a lot at stake. So if you if you screw up on the front end in dealing with the provisions that guide how this kind of land should be developed, you're jeopardizing your project. So I'm, I'm, it's, I'm sort of taken aback that that things have gone uh, south. I hate that expression, gone south. Uh, even though I'm a Yankee, I don't, I don't agree with that being a bad thing. <clears throat> um, so, well, again, I ask what's going on here. I still, I'm trying to understand. Was it just a, a concern that... Um, that what is happening would happen that if you if you got involved with government that you know that that can sometimes not turn out well yeah no it's a good question and i think you know that highlights the reality which is even good people make bad choices when they're rushed right everybody's human everybody has limited capacity city council members have a lot on their plate and so when you rush an approval process and prevent the, the period of time that is necessary to digest issues, to hear from constituents, to hear opposing viewpoints. When you short circuit uh, a 90 day process into 11 days, you're really making it very difficult for decision makers to make good, intelligent, informed decisions on such a short timeline like that. And, and you know, was... 90, 90 days is not exactly an eternity. You're, you're talking about, you know, three months. And uh, I, I've been involved in one way or another with a lot of projects that 
you know, take a lot longer than that to to really design and 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 fix and and move forward with. So, uh, yeah, it's not not unreasonable. But let's go to the broader question of how we do things in Louisiana, and not just. Um, I, I mean, the, the petrochemical impact is literally frightening. I mean, it it, it is because it, it it is life or death is involved. There are people getting cancer um, who shouldn't be. There's rates of cancer in neighborhoods and areas of, of the state that are abnormal, that are not uh, in, in line with what should be, whatever that you know, I, I can't say that I know anything about what should be, but it, it's certainly worse than it than than it, it could be. Let's put it that way. And um, at the same time, I, I'm I'm sort of trying to figure out, as I said in in, uh, in our off conversation, kind of where where is city planning? Where, where is what we? Again, I, I I hate to sort of say in history we did a better job, but um, you have the impression that uh, city planning can be much more engaged and forceful in helping to determine not just what happens with a particular property, but policy overall. So, um, I mean, I, I don't think we have obviously the most uh, uh, citizen protective administration now in, in Baton Rouge, but, um, you know, I, I, I always have hope that as you said good good guys can do bad things but but bad guys can do good things too so i have hope that we will uh, kind of maybe get some of the really most conservative uh, policies uh, um, uh, executed quickly which is seems to be the governor's um the our, our, our new governor's uh, um, mo to, to just get the promises that he committed to uh, executed quickly. He calls a special session, you know, and he's just barely in office. But hopefully um, there might be ways to work with him to uh, shift these policies in a way that would, you know, clearly he's a supporter of the petrochemical industries, but um, to, to do things in a way that would be um, more favorable to as you said, giving giving people the tools and time to uh, to ex to learn about uh, plans of of private developers and, and to have a voice in them, is that something you, I'm sure you've thought about and 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 have been trying to figure out how do we how do we get our both our public officials as well as our citizenry? You, you said it that our citizenry is not engaged enough. Partially because a lot of people have jobs in in the petrochemical chem, chemical industries, and um, those jobs are important jobs and well paying, and and there aren't a whole lot of alternatives. Although, I think one of the things that is also missing that we're looking at um, many of us, and uh, I work with the creative industries, which I think are a growth industry that we've neglected. And so I feel if we put more time and energy into developing that, our creative resources, um, we might be generating a lot of income without polluting land and giving people er er early death sentences. Well, you know, something that what you said made, makes me think of is that whether you're a decision maker on the right or on the left, you need good information, good, accurate, truthful information to make good decisions, right? And what we saw with this river district approval process is that didn't happen. 
So for example, I'll give you a concrete example. The city council was provided an economic impact report that said, that indicated there would be a thousand jobs saved from this tax break, that there'd be millions and millions of dollars of payroll uh, saved. And tried to show that if you give this $21.6 million tax break to the building for the shell company, that there's gonna be so many jobs saved, so much economic impact. But that wasn't true. That was premised on the idea that Shell was gonna leave the city if it didn't get this tax break. But what we've learned is Shell never said they were gonna leave. They never indicated that they were gonna leave. In fact, they are committed to staying in the city whether or not they get this tax break. So the information that the decision makers got was wrong. They were told that in exchange for this tax break, there would be a thousand jobs saved. That wasn't true. So it's very difficult for a decision maker of any political persuasion to make good decisions when the underlying facts and information they're getting is inaccurate. So this is not a question really that you can answer is one that uh, I hope I have an opportunity for a follow-up conversation with um, Ann Rolfe uh, at, at some point. Um, there needs to be in so many different ways that government in general, I mean, you know, we're watching um, a, a, a messaging failure at the national level on the part of the Democratic Party that is just phenomenal um, as the the uh, MAGA uh, dominated Republican Party has been very successful in, in messaging. Um, and again, a lot of bad information. Um, I'm a little concerned that I don't think the awareness level of this issue is there at all. And I feel like I wish that we could, um, uh, you know, get some donations, not just to keep a, a nonprofit alive, but to uh, pay into the marketing uh, process sufficiently to call attention when you when you when you put the as you said as when you put the facts out there and people learn those facts that results in action and so I feel like one of the most important things that has to happen here is not only your lawsuit which obviously caught my attention and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people's attention so that's a good thing but beyond that there needs to be a more sustained, messaging about what we're talking about because i don't know how many more years are we going to continue to <laughs> to just give um these tax breaks for uh for land use um that is punishing our state instead of helping it develop i, I think there's a group called uh, together louisiana i don't know that much about them but i know that they're on to this also that's another organization that and the um, uh, Deep South Environmental Justice Organization is another organization. Uh, maybe there needs to be kind of a convening of some kind of these organizations to really plot out, it, 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 especially with Landry talking about constitutional reform and sending the state police in here permanently into New Orleans. I mean, he's talking about some pretty radical stuff. Um, we better... Um, you know, match the game. So I, I hope that your lawsuit is the beginning. Tell me, um, I'm curious about your practice too, if you don't mind, if we can have just a few more minutes. Sure. What other kinds of um, uh, uh, cases are you working on that 
are related to this kind of issue, this land use issue? Yeah, so we, our firm does a wide range of things. Um, probably most closely related to this is we represent the Descendants Project, which is a St. John the Baptist Parish nonprofit that is pushing back against a massive industrial grain terminal that is being proposed for residential land. And so it would put a major polluting, problematic industrial facility in a residential region of St. John the Baptist Parish. And there's been similarly a number of problems with the uh, local government review and approval of various aspects of that project, including to the point where the head of the parish council threatened a nonprofit leader with imprisonment if she kept talking during public comment. Oh, and okay. we got a copy of the law that he was using to threaten her with. And it, it was a law that was declared unconstitutional nine years ago. And the piece of paper he was holding said unconstitutional and he threatened her anyway. So these problems of rushed uh, approvals for potentially problematic uh, land use issues is not unique to New Orleans. It's a problem across the state. We also deal with police misconduct. We deal with inmates being held past their release dates. There's about 2,200 of those per year. I'm sorry, uh, what was that? Yeah, so in Louisiana, people should be released from prison when their sentences oh, are complete. But the Department of Corrections doesn't do that. It's been holding more than 2,000 people per year past their release date for an average of, at times, of more than a month and a half. Why on earth would they want to do that? That's nothing but a, a, a huge cost to government. And again, the impact on taxpayers. But what's, what's their benefit from holding people back uh, for as long as a year? I, I There's no benefit. But they have never been held accountable to do their job and release people on time. And so as a result, they haven't done it correctly. And so we've brought a number of lawsuits to hold them accountable. And the US, even the US Department of Justice uh, got involved and is investigating the Department of Corrections. So th there's a number of problems that we hold, we attempt to hold government at all levels accountable for their actions. So there are quite a few um, attorneys also in the state, like yourself, um, who fight the good fights on, on, on these kinds of issues that we're talking about. And again, I, 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 I'm a big believer in collaboration and I, I can imagine um, not only the convening of people concerned about land use policy, but um, attorneys such as yourself having to fight these fights rather than on a lone wolf basis, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, but rather in, in, a, in a little bit more of a, um, a collaborative way that might result in truly changing state policy, which happens. I mean, that it can happen. We've, see, we've seen it happen, right? So um, has, is that something that you guys talk about? Yeah, all the time. So we, you know, because we're all stronger when we work together. So for example, with the over-detention problem of people being held past their release dates, we've teamed up, my firm, most and Associates, has teamed up with a local nonprofit, the Promise of Justice Initiative, and then an out-of-state civil rights law firm, Lovie and Lovie. And we've 
pooled our resources to tackle this problem together. Because okay. it's true that these problems are bigger than any one of us. And so we have to work together to tackle them. And we're doing our best to do that. Okay. Now let me wind back and say, what can citizens do right now uh, regarding the River District to um, help to uh, um, support a process of trying to get uh, more attention to um, uh, what's going on with this development. And uh, and I, I'm interested all, also not only in the tax issue with Shell, but the use of that land and making sure that, you know, we do something like what they did in London in reviving a whole part of the city with a huge art center that's it's built in a, a power plant similar to the one that is on this property. And, and, and it's kind of, you know, uh, of course, the resources required to do something like that is what always holds us back. We don't have the resources that some places like a London ha has. But, um, you know, how do you see this going forward? And, and what can the average citizen who might be listening to this uh, do to support what you're doing? Yeah. So I think there's a number of things citizens can do. One is to get educated. And if you go to the Louisiana Bucket Brigade's website, which is labucketbrigade.org. You can learn more about the Bucket Brigade itself. Uh, you can find a link to a copy of our lawsuit, which lays out in great detail the exact problems and broken promises that led to this $21.6 million tax break for a petrochemical company. Um, the Louisiana Bucket Brigade also has resources on its website about taking action. So there's resources for how people can get involved, whether it's by donating, volunteering time, uh, attending events, or being a witness and reporting pollution that everyday citizens may see. There's a system for doing that. So there's a range of, of things that anybody can do to get involved if they're motivated, uh, whether it's sharing your money, time, observations, or, or interest, those are all important things. And labucketbrigade.org is, is a good place to go for that. All right, we want people to be left with that. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. And uh, um, um, I appreciate very much that you made yourself available uh, for this. Please keep us informed as things move on. And um, we'd love to be able to report on developments and, and encourage people to continue to stay involved not only in this case, but in others uh, like it. So uh, actually that's an interesting question. Is there a website that um, kind of provides a little bit of a footprint or guide to initiatives regarding uh, um, land use and other aspects of, of of public policy that people can go to? Is there kind of an inventory of initiatives? Wouldn't that be useful? Yeah, I don't I don't really know anything just like that, but uh maybe that's something yeah. we need to encourage too. If only we all had all the resources that we could do all these things. But thank you very much for what you're doing and um and, and as I said, uh, keep us uh keep us informed going forward. We'll do. Uh, Thank you very much. You Take care.